Vice President Biden is, of course, going to speak to growth. He has been speaking to growth. But there's other priorities that are also going to grab attention and focus and political capital from our remote offices in the New York tri-state area. Welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. For this episode of our podcast, we excerpt our weekly wrap and we turn the tables. Aaron Lyons, our co-head of investment grade research, interviews yours truly, Chris Snow, head of U.S. research, in a discussion of the impacts of a Democratic win in November on the corporate sector. If you are an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We are living a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to our more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. Please enjoy the weekly wrap with Aaron Lyons and myself. Today, we have Christopher Snow, our head of U.S. research, and Chris is going to discuss a note he wrote with many of our analysts. We all know the election's fast approaching, and our team discussed what could happen if we have this blue wave in the fall, analyzing the overall market impact, as well as what a Democratic president and Senate could mean for different sectors. So, Chris, thanks for joining us today. We know election years always create noise and opportunities in the market. If we start at the top, you know, I know we're not picking a side, we know better than to do that, but can you give us a high level of how you're thinking about November? Yes, Aaron. Thanks. Uh, and thanks for finally having me on the webinar. Happy to do it. Yes, uh, we put out the piece this week. It was a team-wide effort. Uh, the point of the piece that we wrote was to canvas our sector analysts for the impacts of a Vice President Biden win. And then that coordinated with blue wave in the Senate, such that the Democrats would have the executive and a majority in both in the House and the Senate. As you said, we want to stay away from politics, so we're not calling the election. But obviously, the trends in the polling echoed by betting pools, prediction markets, it makes a Biden win at least a plausible base case for you know what we think the markets are doing at the moment. And just as an example, take a look at Florida. The average of the polling there has Biden a plus seven at the moment. So, you know, lots of models try to predict the election, but the key variable often is the economy. And the last five and a half months have shaken that foundation that President Trump would have built his campaign upon. So if we just look at, you know, what's happened since then, Vice President Biden, you know, he became the front runner in early March after Super Tuesday. Shortly after that, the pandemic really affected all of Americans' lives in a fairly significant way. Sanders conceded in April, but if you look at the shift in the polls and the shift in sort of the sentiment around the outcome of the election, it didn't really change until the end of May. And, and that actually coincided with the death of George Floyd in Minnesota and, and then the rise of the Black Lives protest efforts throughout the U.S. So, you know, I highlight that is just to say that the, the voters are really, you know, thinking about a host of issues, you know, whether it's the economy, pandemic, as well as some of these social issues that have come to the fore over the last several months. It's important to caveat that we're 95 days away from the election. And I shouldn't joke, but, you know, as far as we know, and a lot could happen. We have Biden's pick for VP, which is supposed to come next week. We have the debates, which is a forum that Biden did not excel in during the primaries uh, and ultimately some kind of October surprise. Uh, and so if you recall back in 2016, Secretary Clinton was actually you know, the favorite candidate up until the day before the election and the, you know, bet fair at the moment at the time was predicting an 80%, you know, likely that Clinton would win. And so, you know, as we kind of frame up about how we're looking at the fall, you know, it's going to come down to uh, a couple of key states and, and it's important not to look at the national polls, you know, whether or not 7 million people or 10 million people in California vote for Biden, but the outcome is going to be the same. And if you look at just in 2016, 
the you know just 80,000 voters had shifted in three states Wisconsin Michigan Pennsylvania you know that would have shifted the outcome of the election an interesting nuance to that as well is that you know, if you look at the third party candidates, the Libertarian, which had some headline names like Johnson and Weld, as well as a Green Party candidate, you know, that differential in those states was also within the number of votes that were in the third party. So it, it's really hard to predict. So when we're looking at the states, you know, we think the six that, that Trump won, that Obama had won in 12 are important. Uh, and those would be Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Iowa. And I know Iowa is uh, true to you, uh, near and dear to you, Aaron. Uh, I know, it's but, my great um, home state, so. <laughs> and so you probably have a, a good inside line. And then <laughs> you also have kind of polling suggesting that Arizona, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina are in play. And you might actually be able to include Texas in that as well. So, you know, that, that narrows the list a little bit. But, you know, if you look at the shift, it really only needs, uh, Biden only needs maybe three or four of those 10 or so states to shift for the election to go in his favor. The other piece of the puzzle is, of course, the Senate, which, you know, would potentially have a little bit more impact in terms of the market. It just, I think the sentiment there is less than a consensus. And, you know, if you look at the math there, you just have more Republican candidates up for re-election than you do Democrats this year. You know, both look like they're pulling to lose a state. You know, Georgia looks like it'd go back to Republican. Arizona looks to favor the Democrat. But otherwise, there's sort of six key states there, and the Democrats would need to pick up three states to have a majority in the Senate, assuming, you know, a vice president, uh, a deciding vote. And those six states would be Colorado, Georgia, Iowa, Maine, Montana, and North Carolina. So, you know, it's uh, a lot that can happen over the next phase. And, you know, it seems like, you know, as we know it now, if the election were held today, that, that Biden would likely win the presidency and that, you know, there'd still be some ambiguity on the Senate, but there is a plausible case that the Democrats would control the Senate as well. Okay. But let's just think about a Trump win for a second. I think one thing we learned last time around is we don't quite know who is going to vote for him. And I think this time around, you may have much more kind of the silent support potentially. Well, nobody knows really, but let's assume he wins. What do you think another four years of Trump could mean for the economy and the market? Oh, sure. I, I think to your point, Aaron, too, is that he, he's done a great job of maintaining the energy of the base. And, you know, a lot of metrics sort of suggest that the energy of that constituency is quite strong. And I think that has to do with what he's done for, you know, his policies, you know, for all the focus that, that has been on his style, you know, particularly in the media, the substance of the president's first four years is largely due to, you know, Republican policy principles. He's delivered on tax cuts. He's had a deregulatory focus, tighter borders to imports and immigration. Uh, partial unwinding to Obama's ACA, and you know, generally not too much meddling in, in in foreign affairs. And so, you know, the overarching theme of Trump's first four years was growth, and he's highly attuned to market perception of his efforts. And that you know, whether it's deregulatory, lower taxes, there was little confusion in you know amongst the base, but also I think in the investment community about how you know Trump would approach matters of the economy. I think the areas where th there might have been a headwind to that would be a bit on the personalization of certain issues, the with me or against me that we saw, you know, whether it was the involvement in the AT&T's merger, you know, the auto companies agreement with California, you know, a number of those kind of situations when it, it seemed that the personal sort of got in front of the, the policy perhaps. And, and I, I think that that created some uncertainty and, and obviously investors uh, don't like uncertainty. And the other, the, the big one of course would be trade. Whereas I, th I think that fair trade agreements are important and, and you have certain, you know, 
trading partners such as China, where the agreements are, are, are probably patently unfair as they exist now. But then you know, the approach to sort of get to the right place on trade is, you know, the way he went about it was with tariffs in some of the circumstances. And that's, you know, widely sort of understood to be a tax on, on consumers. And so, you know, if we look at the, the actual effect of something like the USMCA, it's not all that different from the, the agreement that was replacing it, but we still have some unfinished business. So as we look at for the next four years, I, I think that we'd look at, you know, continue that focus on growth. You know, infrastructure was unfinished business in the first four years. You know, it seems to tend to fracture in the legislative process, but, you know, that's obviously given what's going on in the economy now, relief and stimulus are, are kind of key issues. And then the, the other one would be something like trade, where, you know, that was unfinished business with the partners in Europe and Asia to a large extent. And, and that would be, you know, things that we would, would look to see the Trump administration do in its next four years. Thanks. And you mentioned the economy, and let's just stick with that for a second. We just saw that the U.S. GDP contracted nearly 33%, record number, record uh, downdraft. What is the status of this additional stimulus plan? I know it's been battered back and forth over the course of the week, but it looks like as things expire today, we don't have a deal. What is the latest on what's going on there? It's tough to say, of course. Um, and, you know, as legislation goes, it, you know, they're always far apart until they come together. And the Congress and, and the White House and, you know, generally, and, and this one specifically, are sort of deadline magnets. And, and that includes, you know, after we're obviously passing with some of these deadlines. You know, what's out there now is that the, you know, the plan that's sort of loosely, you know, come out of the White House and the Senate, or, you know, obviously two different constituencies there, but is in the ballpark of a trillion or so uh, of relief or stimulus. And that, you know, the Democrats with their HERO Act is out there with three and a half trillion dollars of stimulus. So you have a couple of key factors here, which is, you know, areas of dispute. One is the level of support for state and local governments, you know, obviously the level of support that you want to do for, for consumers. And then, you know, you have items such as infrastructure, which could be in that mix as well. And, and then again, what you might see support for, for the supply side or, or the corporate side. So the big difference is, is those numbers, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there, it starts to matter, of course. But, you know, I think that overnight, you did see that there were some reports that the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, had actually put in front of the Democrats to extend the $600 benefit, which is a supplemental benefit over the existing state benefits, as a sort of a narrow bill to specifically target those that are in need without loading up potentially with a, a much more massive stimulus bill. And the Democrats were obviously not interested in, in pursuing that tack. You know, I think that one of the strengths of the CARES Act was that, to a large degree, it was fairly well targeted at the areas of the economy that we needed to focus on. Is that, you know, clearly people who have lost their jobs, there's income support for those individuals. There was $1,200 checks for individuals, but had an income cap. And if you look at what the GDP report came out yesterday, and and you know, our strategist Chris Setter did a nice job of putting that report out. You look at the overall disposable income for this country was actually higher year over year because of the amount of government support and. And, you know, we think that speaks to a theme is that you have people that are sort of lower income and people that have lost their jobs. You you had a, a certain degree of government support, which replaced that income and they were able to spend. But then you ultimately had GDP decline, which reflects, you know, obviously investment, which is down significantly, but 
then you had you know people whose income might not have been disrupted, but otherwise had an inability to spend, whether it was because of government shutdowns or because of you know individuals just uh, changing their own behavior based on their concerns for safety. So that you know as you look at this stimulus going forward in April, the gap excluding government benefits was about 100 billion in that month in terms of disposable income. That kind of recovered somewhat to 70 billion in subsequent ones. You know that kind of lays somewhat of a marker of what kind of support you might need to to give relief to certain pockets of the economy. But importantly is that even with the income above last year's inclusive of those government benefits, we still saw you know a, a massive remaking the economy in a negative way. Uh, so ultimately we do think a deal gets done. I, I would suspect that it would be, you know, I should reveal some humility in this, but that it wouldn't be close to the Democrats number at three and a half trillion, but that it would be some number that would it would try to get through the election. And that the, you know, I think the criticism of the White House is that Secretary Mnuchin is sort of Pelosi divided by two or, or, or Speaker of the House Pelosi uh, divided by two. But you do have the motivation of the president who wants to win re-election. And a big part of that is going to be how the economy is functioning. Obviously, the pandemic is going to be an important part of that as well. Uh, so that's a constituent that wants spending and that the Democrats, all else being equal, are, are, are generally pro-stimulus and particularly as it sort of redistributes you know, funds into uh, lower income or, or middle income parts of the economy. Uh, so I think that this uh, majority leader uh, McConnell, his marker has been on liability relief for small businesses, but otherwise is not really kind of laid out too many markers that need to be satisfied. So within that, there's a deal to get done, and it's north of $1 trillion, but probably south of $2 trillion. Thanks. And we did see the Fed actually extend its corporate purchase program this week as well. They have extended the program to the end of the year. It was slated to expire on September 30th. So that's good news. They haven't really bought that much, but it's good to know that program is still there. So let's switch focus for a second. And I think we all agree that four more years of Trump would likely be market supportive. But what are the key policies from Joe Biden? I know you and the team wrote a lot about this in the note, but what are the high level focus areas for Biden? Yeah, so I think, I mean, Vice President Biden is, of course, going to speak to growth. He has been speaking to growth. But there's other priorities that are also going to grab attention and focus and political capital as he looks at you know, what he would do in the next four years. The first one we put up there was the environmental reform and Green New Deal. They've obviously released some details on that in the Biden-Sanders compact that was released earlier this month. That was the first agenda item. And so, you know, we think that's going to be a key part of Biden's focus when, you know, if he were to win in, in January. And, you know, some of those markers have been, you know, focusing on our electricity generation in this country, electric vehicles, you know, the number of, you know, carbon, carbon consumption, you know, th these types of things we, we think would be involved in that. And we'll get to, I think, later on a little bit more detail about how the sector impacts, but to go through a couple more of the issues that we think, you know, healthcare access would be another one. You know, as we've seen in this pandemic, we've, there's been 5 million people that have been uh, additionally uninsured. The Trump administration walked back some of the efforts that they've done on ACA. You know, this has obviously been an issue that's been of interest for the Democrats for some time. And then Vice President Biden was, was of course, part of the administration that, that put the ACA in place. Uh, and so we think that that would end up short of Medicare for all, according to the statements that he's put out there, but that it would potentially include stuff like, like a public option. 
you know, otherwise trade and immigration, you know, certainly on immigration, there, there'd be relaxed policies, probably both at the, the sort of the high skilled workforce, H-1B type of stuff, as well as probably less bellicosity on the other parts of immigration across our borders. And then on trade, you know, the, the politics is, of, of course, it's changed over the last couple of decades. And whereas trade has really been kind of a moderate centrist type of issue uh, across parties with probably a slight lean on the Republican side. But I think as you've seen politics get more polarized generally, and then you know, certainly in the legislature, that, that there's been less of a, a ground to stand on for, for tr- trade for people. So, uh, you know, that being said, is that, you know, even if trade policy isn't all that different from Trump, in, in effect, the nature of it and the tone of it is, is likely to be different. You know, particularly as as postured to to Europe, you know. Otherwise, you know, issues such as uh, infrastructure. You know, Biden has spoken to to some Buy America type of stuff that that's likely to be part of stimulus or relief that we see as part of his administration. And then the social issue of the moment, Black Lives Matter, is likely to show up in, in policy initiatives. And so, whether or not it's directly economic, it, it's you know, these types of things require focus, political capital, and those types of things. So that it, it's important to kind of put that in the context of these other factors, which might have a a, a, a more more macro type of impact. You know, ultimately we, you know, Biden is the the more moderate candidate that came through from the Democrats and, and we expect that to be the case. And you know, certain issues which are probably hew a little bit more towards the wing of the party, such as DC statehood or or packing the courts, you know, that seems like there's less of an interest on his part. You know, there really is, you know, if you look at previous administrations, a two-year window before the midterms, which generally have historically Result in a, in a less favorable legislative environment to get stuff done, and so we would think that the, the sort of the first five topics that, that I mentioned would, would be more likely to be the focus than, than some of the sort of the three pointer type of type of things like the DC statehood or packing the courts. Thanks. So let's jump to a question that came in. It says, "Does a more highly regulated environment benefit IG credit as competition is stifled?" It's a good question. I, it, I think it's tough to take that as a, as a generality. It's, yeah, I would say it's sector specific too. Yeah. And, and I think, I, I think you have a couple of things that, that go to that. And, and you know, I, as Aaron, you and I have spoken about sort of where valuations are in the market and looking at where the S&P is and thinking about what the economy is going to look like over the next couple of years is that I, I think you kind of have an, an investment grade issuers I think you'd put in that bucket is that I think you're going to have a sort of a challenging environment for, for small and medium sized enterprises. And that, you know, as you look at kind of consensus forecast, I think has S&P earnings up over 2019 for 2021. You know, part of that, I think that puzzle is, is a bit of a market share gain. A pro-regulatory environment all else being equal, yeah, I think it does create a barrier to entry. How that speaks specifically and whether or not that specifically benefits the investment grade sector, I, I, I'd be, I, I, I see that case, but I'd be, I think it's challenging to, to, to argue that strongly. Yeah. Okay. One of the headlines that we've been following is the VP pick for Joe Biden. So that announcement, I think, is supposed to come out in the next week. Do you think that pick could have a heavy influence on the way the policies take shape? It certainly does. And it certainly does for, you know, voters' perception of it, as well as the investment community's perception of it. You know, I think that given the last five and a half months with the pandemic, it's and as well as, you know, stuff like Black Lives Matter that's emerged is that, you know, it's changed the the focus for what Vice President Biden would like to accomplish with a VP pick. You know, certainly coming out of the, the, the primary or, you know, when, when the primary sort of shifted is that, you know, there, there's how much they have to sort of buy the support of the, the left wing, you know, like a Senator Sanders, or Senator Warren with a position on the ticket. And that I, I think that's evolved so that 
their you know Senator Warden is certainly still on that list. You know, I think Vice President Biden's focus is has been shifted a little bit to identity politics, and and he's spoken specifically about having a female on the ticket, and with a heavy emphasis on an African American female. So that has I think created a little bit more room for him to have a moderate person on the ticket. So I, I think that it could be the case that we have someone from the left side of it, and if you look at you know, Representative Bass or Senator Duckworth, you know, those people do come from the more progressive side of the Democratic Party. And, and, and those could, you know, inform policy or at least perception of how voters and, and investment community is going to see it. But you also have Senator Harris, who would be, you know, otherwise more seen as more moderate. You have Susan Rice, who is a national security advisor, uh, who was part of the Obama administration and, you know, obviously not having been in elected office. She don't have a track record, but would otherwise be seen as a moderate. So I, I, I do think that if, you know, the consensus probably now is that Biden does pick a more moderate person and that if he did end up going left, that that would have a negative read through to the market. The one thing that we have to keep in mind as well, and you touched on this earlier, is that the Republicans currently control the Senate and the White House. And how do you think about a split result? And is that gridlock to say that, you know, Vice President Biden gets the presidency, but we still have Republicans control the Senate. Do you think that gridlock that we know will result from that split is a good or a bad thing for markets? Well, I think the markets, uh, you know, favor gridlock. Uh, it can be messy and noisy and all sorts of stuff like that. But that, you know, the ability to mute the more extreme parts of the party, you know, limits the pendulum, the width of the pendulum, those types of factors. So I think the the market does see it positively. The nuance here, I mean, there's a couple. One would be that, you know, if we look at 2020 and if you did have a Republican Senate and Vice President Biden in the White House, and you know, I haven't spoken too much about the Congress, but it seems like there's a fairly wide consensus that remains within Democratic control. You might look at the period coming out of the GFC where the you know every dollar that went into stimulus had to come out uh, a dollar somewhere else in the budget. And so there are potential implications of having a split there that could be challenging. I think that the things, and, and you saw Senator Sanders speak to it yesterday, is whether or not the filibuster remains in force. So that even if you had the Democrats win control of the Senate, they, they clearly are going to be short of the 60 uh, that would be required to you know get cloture and end debate and, and stop the filibuster. We've seen some watering down of the filibuster over successive Congresses. You know, right now or up till now has been you know exclusively on the judiciary, first for you know general judicial appointments, and then most recently with the Supreme Court. Given you know again the the need for the support from the left wing of the party, as well as the Democrats of have, having gone through the, the experience of the Obama administration, you know we wouldn't be surprised to see you know some watering down of cloture or do non-judicial types of appointments. What that would look like, I, you know, I don't know, but the I, I, you know, gridlock, all else being equal, I think is positive for the markets. You know, the 60 vote count that would otherwise create gridlock in the Senate is is probably or probably or I, I think there's a plausible case that that could be essentially mitigated in some ways, such that the Democrats would be able to use their simple majority if they had it to express some policy goals. Thanks. So let's get into some of the sector impacts, as that's generally where we see the relative value opportunities play out. I think our team did a, a fantastic job of sharing their views across 23 different subsectors. And in addition, we have a number of reports that provide much deeper dives. As we go through and the team went through the potential good and bad outcomes, how would you classify each sector's potential impact from this? Wave? Yeah. So 
the the report you know definitely want to encourage the listeners to to take a look at it i, I don't want to sort of go through all of the lists on there but uh, a couple of the highlights i i think could be helpful and you know again we canvassed you know the, the whole sort of senior analyst team here at credit sites to get some thoughts on how the election was going to impact their sectors so maybe i'll just sort of you know lump them into sort of good to the bad and and the neutral and you know, obviously, a lot of complexity to to these factors. But you know, one of the goods is actually uh, Andy DeVries, our utility analyst. He actually sees the Vice President Biden win as potentially favorable for the utility sector. You know, it's obviously a highly regulated sector. The the industry has the ability to you know uh, push their you know when they make investments to recover those investments through increases to the rate base. And so that as you see the shift from from coal and uh, you know dirty sources of energy into potentially greener sources of energy, that those investments. Generally Generally results in a rate base increase such that there's a tilt towards higher, you know, earnings, uh, you know, stronger earnings growth, better cash flows that, that are positive for for those credits. You know, the other part too of the green energy bill, which could be a positive, is is, is the investment in in electric vehicles, and that would be a, a potential demand driver for the utilities. One thing to watch, of course, which could sort of you know, mitigate that, but the, the, those benefits would be whether or not net metering comes back as a factor for utilities. And net metering, uh, what it does is that it allows individuals to, you know, if they make the investment and have solar panels on their roof, they can sell that power back to the utility. And the nature and the structure of that, you know, those sales back to the utility. Yeah initially that those had usually support the consumers you know in various states uh, that shifted back towards benefiting the utilities whether or not we see a federal policy that would would sort of shift that you know that balance those economics in favor of uh, one part or the other another positive sector is the hospital and health insurer sector you know obviously increasing access to health insurance you know particularly if it comes with some government support is you know for our hospitals it's positive for admissions and positive for uninsured rates and so whether or not that's more affordable healthcare options or in the form of increased Medicaid spending, you know, that's generally going to be positive for the hospitals. Uh, and then similarly for the managed care providers, since Biden has been, you know, well short of Medicare for all and, and sort of uh, wiping out the private sector and instead of relying on the private sector to distribute these types of benefits, you know, we see that as potentially positive for the health insurance sector. And, and then, you know, lastly of the highlights, and, and of course we have more in the piece, is that on the home building side is that, you know, Biden has been out there with you know investment in terms of increased access to owned homes and and so you know those supports would be expressed through you know obviously the industry that can build that build those homes you know in terms of the less favorable our analysts uh, highlighted the pharmaceutical sector and of course pricing is is sort of you know enemy number one we, we've seen obviously president trump speak to it earlier this week you know how much he can do by regulatory process or you know through executive rather than through new laws but you know this increased healthcare comes with the idea of increased affordable healthcare, and and drugs end up being uh, kind of the target for that. So we think that a Biden administration would be negative for the pharmaceutical sector, retail. We actually see as potential negative. You know, again, as you know, we, we said that Vice President Biden is going to focus on growth. There's also other types of issues that they're going to be focused on. And so historically, Democrats have been concerned about minimum wage, you know, fair fair compensation practices, and that the retail sector is being a heavily reliant on low-income workers, you know, whether or not there's sort of the direct impact in terms of minimum wage laws or even the indirect of just shining a spotlight on those types of issues. And then similarly, you know, stuff like tobacco, where it's generally going to be an issue where the Democrats are going to be more focused on the health considerations rather than the economic considerations of an industry like that, and that you could see the FDA banning something like menthol cigarettes. 
And then lastly, in the telecom sector, the Democrats have historically been in favor of net neutrality, which is, you know, affects the ability for the telecom industry to, you know, price their services and and, and also affects kind of where they would choose to, to make certain investments. And so that net neutrality, you know, ostensibly you know, speaks to some consumer benefit is that the, the industry has its hands tied in terms of how it expects to price the investments that it would like to make. And so that a reemergence of that we see as negative. Two of the neutral ones that I just want to highlight, you know, given the, the size and importance of the sectors, uh, one is the banks. And, you know, obviously the, the, the Democrats historically would be sort of big as bad and those types of factors. But, you know, if you look at this particular crisis that we're in, the banks don't really have any fingerprints on it, whereas they did in, in, in or the financial sector generally, whereas they did in, the, in, in prior cycles. So that, you know, even polling wise, the banks have just not had captured as much as the, the public ire as they have in, in previous cycles. So that, you know, there's less broken about it per se that that would need to be fixed. And so that we, we think that they, even if a Biden administration sort of speaks to certain types of things, it's less likely to, to have the wholesale revisions to regulations that we saw in previous cycles. There have certainly been rumors of whether or not you'd see like a, a, a Senator Warren as Treasury Secretary or Fed Chair Brainerd or, or what have you, which could increase the regulatory environment. But, you know, where we sort of differ from prior cycles or even just, you know, where it becomes a major headwind uh, is the difference in degree. And then in autos, would be another one where, you know, whether it's environmental regulation, safety, those types of things where the feds are, are historically going to be evolved and particularly from the from the Democrats, you know, here, you know, because of what the, the audio industry being global in nature and given where regulations are in China as well as Europe, is that even if there are increased regulations in terms of the, U, the U.S. For, for green or for safety, there's a degree of catch up that the industry would be making relative to the other markets and that in terms of the regulations so that it actually might not be as adverse in terms of uh, investment requirements that you might otherwise consider. And so again, you know, we covered uh, up on, you know, you know, really the rest of the corporate landscape, chemicals, metals, those types of things in the piece. So I'd really encourage, you know, for a more thorough discussion of the stuff to take a look at those. Thanks, Chris. That's a, a great overview. And I just thank you and the team for putting out such a great report. I think this will continue to be very topical as investors try to figure out who might win and what the policies could mean for their portfolios. I hope you enjoyed the excerpt from our weekly wrap. Please stay tuned for future episodes of our podcast. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com, or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit size disclaimer, all price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.